Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. You're joining us for another episode of the Incredible Two-Headed Podcast, but you already know that. You heard the intro. A um, little bit of an update. The intro is, is a bit wrong this week. We're going a little bit off format. We're not going to be making a double feature this week. I have a pretty special guest and a pretty special movie, and we're going to just be devoting the entire episode to one film, Miracle Mile. And here to join me uh, with this, and we'll, we'll discuss why it's only the one film, is Rick Todd Johnson. Rick, how's it going? Uh, going good. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, the the did, I just finished watching this movie again, uh, second time in two days, and uh, you know th this movie always kind of puts me into a a little bit of an odd emotional state, which we'll get into. But I am I, I enjoy it. I really enjoy it, and I'm so I'm feeling good. I'm really looking forward to talking about this with you. That's excellent. Um, I was thinking maybe we should uh, um, kind of uh, talk about the genesis of why, like, like you said, we were talking about why it's only one film, but maybe we, I mean, this, I'm looking at this as kind of a backdoor pilot kind of thing. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Yeah. We, definitely. Let's talk about it. I was hoping to do sure. that. Well. Sure. So um, I was just going to say uh, a few years ago, Aaron and I started a blog that we called uh, visiting and revisiting. And the concept was that um, one of us had seen a film and had a lot of experience with the, with a particular film and the other one had not seen it. So one is visiting the film and one is revisiting the film. And then we wrote a series of essays. We did a few movies like this on, on the blog where we, we write, not, not essays, but you know, the two of us writing back and forth about our experiences with the film. And, uh, and then we had talked about doing it as a podcast at one point and never got around to it. And, at that point, we neither one of us had a podcast. I still don't, but uh, Aaron started his and uh, took off. But we've been talking all along about, well, maybe we should try this idea on a podcast at some point. Um, and we just kind of, uh, Aaron said, hey, do you want to record an episode? And he said, what film do you want to do? And I was like, oh, let's do Miracle Mile. And I was just like, and he suggested a second film. And I said, well, no, I think we should do it like, you know, we did it with, you know, on the, on the blog, which was, we just talk about the one film and then we choose it. And then the next one chooses a different film the next time. So anyway, we, uh, Miracle Mile was the, was the next film that we were going to do on the blog. And we never got around to it, even though I had bought Aaron a copy of the movie on Blu-ray and sent it to him and stuff. And, or I, I think you, I think you gave it to you. I don't think I said it. Yeah. We, you gave it to me in line, I think in line at Pirates of the Caribbean. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I surprised you with it. That's right. um, so and uh, this, yeah, and and so uh, we. I just thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity to finally get around and actually discuss this movie because we really haven't. Even though I know Aaron's watched it a few times since I gave it to him, 
Uh, so it's not a true visiting and revisiting because it's usually based on one person having seen it for the first time, but, uh, but it still holds the same place. So uh, uh, let's get to it. All right. Well, um, then we'll, we'll just take a really quick break. Uh, we'll play a trailer or something for this movie. We'll come back and we'll discuss it. Love can sure spin your head around. God, where do you begin? Well, hello. We must have been meant to be together. It's too bad you have to work tonight. Only till midnight. Fate is a funny thing. Take a nap, because you're going to need all your energy tonight. It was one of those strange nights. <gasps> Finally meet the right girl and you blow it. That could ruin your whole day in a big way. Dad, it's happening. This is it. This is really it. This is the big one. This is a joke, right? It's really happening. 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 This can't be true. We'll all be dead if we don't get out of here. Nobody believes this, do they? Not me. Not Spongy. Make a list for me. People who would want to bring along. We gotta get Julie. Who's Julie? Harry Belafonte. Who are you? Who are you? Stop and let me off. No, I don't stop for nothing. Jump! Don't hurt me, man. I got Nakamichi Pioneer. I got everything. If it doesn't happen, I'll tell you. If what doesn't happen, man? I'm dreaming. That's, that's it, I'm dreaming. Y'all ready to go? You the pilot? Hey! Hey, do you know anybody who can fly a helicopter? Helicopter pilots. All the helicopter pilot bars are closed. What's the problem? It's true. Love can be exciting. Trust me with this. Even terrifying. Julie! I love you. But nothing could prepare you for an experience like this. What is the truth, Harry? Miracle Mile. Listen, I'm just a guy who, who picked up the phone. Miracle Mile from 1988, written and directed by Steve DeJarnett. The film follows a young man, played by Anthony Edwards, as he hears a chance phone call telling them that a nuclear war has started and missiles will hit his city in 70 minutes. The title, Miracle Mile, refers to the neighborhood most of the action in the movie takes place in, uh, in pretty much in real time in the middle of the night. As we talked about up front, this is a movie Rick suggested for our uh, uh, defunct blog, maybe future podcast, Visiting and Revisiting. Um, I had not seen it before. I was familiar only with the title. And I, the, I think the reason I never watched it is because at the time you gave it to me, I, I, don't, I wasn't aware of any big critical reappraisal of this film, even though now I'm aware it's kind of a big cult item or there, there's a, a devoted audience for this film. Um, the original DVDs, I don't remember. I don't know if you remember them. The DVD cover for this was Anthony Edwards and Mayor Winningham. And Anthony Edwards is, you know, scraped up and he's in a phone booth and there's a uh, fallout symbol behind him. And like, a, I, think, I think maybe there was a mushroom cloud in the background and it was a really kind of gross orangish color. It's pretty um, cheesy. 
it, it's a bad cover and it made me think it was just like the you know the day after or um what's the british one threads or it just you know kind of like one of those very maybe very powerful but also part kind of dry uh yeah nuclear like holocaust a, movie a real slog to get through you know and i was not prepared for this movie i loved it from the moment i saw it like the, the first time i was like holy cow like where has this movie been all my life it, it i i love it i i have to start this off by thanking you for getting me that wonderful kino lorber like special edition there's so much good stuff on there yeah well i mean i had not even seen it on dvd like i saw i i've always had a copy of it on vhs uh, recorded off of like HBO or some or Cinemax or something like that, which I've been like, and honestly, I had not watched at the time when we got the Blu-ray, I had not seen the film in probably about 15 years. So even though I had a copy of it, I just kind of had to put it aside. Yeah. Did you, but, but did, did you get yourself that Blu-ray? I got the Blu-ray at the same time I got yours. Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I bought, I bought, I, I, I bought two copies when it was announced to come out on Blu-ray. So I was like, oh, Aaron's got to see this movie. <laughs> it's like. I'm glad you did. Yeah, it, it's good. Um, I should, I guess I'll just kind of go through my experiences early on watching it. Is the first 20 minutes of the movie were, were not quite what I expected. I think I had, I, I kind of purposely didn't read anything more about what the movie was. Obviously the cover uh, of the Blu-ray has the, uh, the, burning palm tree and the small mushroom cloud in the distance. Um, I didn't even look too closely into that. And in the beginning, I actually kind of forgot <laughs> that there was supposed to be a, like a nuclear aspect to this movie. I, I, I think in the first like 10 to 20 minutes, I was starting to think it was going to be like um, something wild or like a quirky 80s, like, like, uh, adult like romantic comedy not adult but i just mean like with a bit of menace to it, it like kind of a dark thread running through it um so when this movie takes the first of several jarring tonal shifts like uh 20 minutes into it uh i had actually forgotten what the movie was like what was going to happen or not what was going to happen but i had forgotten like oh yeah there's a mushroom cloud on all the advertisement like <laughs> i should have expected something like this um, so I guess in a way I had about the best visiting experience you could have with this movie, uh, like what at the time it was 30 years later. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I want to say before, I'm sorry, I'll jump over to you, like let you jump in in a second. Um, I, I do want to say, I normally don't worry too much about spoilers on this. People listening should know that we're going to be discussing everything. Uh, I, I do want to say in this one, the movie does kind of like depend on you not being certain about what some of the things are. We're going to talk about all of that starting right now. I highly recommend you go into this movie kind of like maybe not knowing what, what those are. I think you're going to love it either way, but, um, if you want to kind of like have that tightrope walk that the movie is on your first viewing experience, maybe pause this, go rent it, or, or it's fairly easily available these days. Yes. 
but anyway, you, you go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted. No, I was just agreeing with one of your, I, I was just saying yes to one of your points earlier. And uh, I was just agreeing. Um, but I would like to say before we get into the plot and stuff, uh, my experience with the film is I, I'm one of the lucky few who saw this movie in a theater. So it was not a box office hit at all. Oh, uh, no, no. I did see this in a theater. I saw it once in a theater. Uh, it was not in town very long. <laughs> and so I, but I was amped to see it. Um, I, from early in his career, I was a big fan of Anthony Edwards. So, uh, um, and remained a fan of his. And uh, so I was stoked to see this movie when I saw, I'm going to tell you where I saw the uh, poster for it first was in a copy of Variety. Uh, I, back in the eighties, when I was, you know, working for the news agency and stuff, we got uh, our, a uh, couple of our stores regularly carried variety, the, the weekly one, not the daily, they didn't carry the daily, um, but they, they were carrying weekly variety. And mind you, we're talking about Anchorage, Alaska, which is not an industry town at all, yeah. um, as far as Hollywood goes. So um, I, I think it was only our Sears mall store and our downtown store carried uh um, and Sears Mall was a midtown mall in Anchorage and uh, um, still is. But um, our, our bookstores carried uh, Variety, the, the weekly one. And I made a, and because one, one of my friends worked at the, 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 the Sears Mall store, um, I regularly visit him and have lunch with him. And every time I'd go there, I would go on a Wednesday and I would get the latest Variety. <laughs> and it was like... And and so uh, and and then we go and have lunch and stuff and I would be flipping through variety and I became and I I did I bought variety for years and years you know uh, every week and uh, there was a full page and somewhere in my collection of stuff I still have this page actually um, but there is a full color and variety is a is black and white newspaper mostly but it would have color ads in it once in a while it have color inserts and this was a full. Uh, a full page color, really nice poster of, of, of Miracle Mile. And it was not, uh, if you look at IMDb, you'll see the, the, po the poster with the palm tree and stuff. That's not it. It's the poster of the scene in the middle of the film of Anthony Edwards standing on a car with just chaos around him on the streets. And it's an amazing shot. And, uh, and that, there was a poster of that. And that's the first time I saw it. And I said, I saw that and I just went, Holy crap! I got to see this movie. <laughs> it was yeah. like um, that. That is one of several amazing shots in this movie. <laughs> like this movie is very well, uh, like very well shot. Everything in this looks yeah. really cool and way more planned out than I ever imagined it would be. You know, like I uh, looking at it now on on, on the Blu-ray and listening to the commentaries by the directors, two different commentary tracks, and. Uh, um, I was actually shocked by when I was younger, I didn't really care about this stuff, but talking, them talking about the compositions in the film and it's just like, wow. And I don't really notice it until they were like talking about it. I'm going, yeah, these are actually the really well-planned out shots and, and the stuff they have in the background. I, they thought about everything in production design and all, I mean, it's really well done. It's certainly more in depth in a cinematic sense than I thought it was when I first saw it because to me I was just looking for a cool movie to watch and uh but you know one week I'm watching Goonies one next week I'm watching this next week I'm watching you know Night of the Creeps whatever you know I'm, I'm they're all, all different years but you know 
I was just watching every film in a theater anyway. So it, it didn't matter to me at the time. But nowadays, I look, would look for this type of stuff. <laughs> so Yeah, well, that I have that in my notes as well. Because it, it, it's what struck me the first time, but it wasn't until this uh, latest viewing um, that, like, that I really started to hone in. Because I also watched the commentary, but I, I, I started to hone in even before I watched the commentary on how well constructed the movie is in every aspect. And I don't just mean like the tightness of the script, um, but the framing, how the characters are 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 arranged in a room when there are multiple characters uh yeah the color color palette um how well everything is lit the staging the tightness of the script the way the movie escalates the like nightmarish way it just like keeps escalating and spiraling out of control the music like for a movie that is so much a mix of genres and tones and it's got these jarring shifts throughout it it all comes together it makes the movie feel like one very well crafted piece and and you're right it's it's pretty amazing when you i only watched one of the commentaries i don't i didn't watch the other one where he he talks with a production designer or whoever that was um but when you start to hear what went into just like planning a shot or like I think one of the things where he was talking about there's a scene where Anthony Edwards is stressed out and instead of like taking the coffee and pouring it, he just pours the whole creamer inside the coffee cup. And the yes. director's like, Yeah, that was supposed to look like a mushroom cloud. And like, oh wow, like every little tiny yeah. thing. Um, and I think it's because he spent like 10 years trying to get this movie made. Um it went through like several different uh several different hands it could have been made at several different stages but he didn't ever want to change his ending and it's like well good for him that i mean he didn't have much experience at this time he did he wrote some stuff but it's like like he wrote this right out of film school and then spent 10 years just refusing to change it for the studio yeah Um, and it was one of those scripts that bounced around for like like a long yeah as you said 10 years but it was it it was nowadays it would be one of those scripts that we would know would be on the blacklist which is you know the the scripts the unproduced scripts the you know the best unproduced scripts list and stuff um but back then that that didn't exist i don't think um but yeah it was a a well-known script in hollywood at the time um but i think the really interesting thing about it is that this was supposed to be the twilight zone movie at one point i heard about that the Twilight Zone movie, as originally conceived, was not for like a quartet of, of different episodes of the old Twilight Zone redone by by big directors. It was a this was originally going to be that movie. It, Miracle Mile was Twilight Zone the movie until they decided to change it. So um, that's pretty stunning to me, and it does play like an extended Twilight Zone episode in a lot of ways. Well, it the scene. It, you could easily see this being like an episode of the series um, if they had like shortened it, you know, but the the scene after he discovers or he he gets the phone call and he's freaking out and he decides to like tell everybody in the, the diner, like the, the (laughs) small group of people that are just there and at four in the morning. That Um, That whole diner scene could be totally be a twilight zone. He could. I was, I actually like, 
so I he might as well just be played by Burgess Meredith. You yeah. Know, it's, yeah. So when I watched it this time, I was watching it. I'm like, oh, this would be a good Twilight Zone. And then, and then, I, then the commentary, he talks about how at one point it was going to be the Twilight Zone movie, but apparently he didn't like the ending for that either. Um, right. I think it, it was just like, like all the stars that were attached to it and everything. I, I mean, I'm glad he stuck to his guns on that. That, uh, that I mean, this movie doesn't work without. Oh, sorry. I mean, I guess it would work because you kind of, in a way, want the ending to be different. Um, but uh, it, it's such a like, it's such a wonderful way to go ahead out on the movie, even though it is a total downer in a way. In another way, it is like swooningly romantic it's like this really like heart swelling moment that is also the like slow miserable death or maybe sudden miserable death of the main characters like it's just it uh and presumably most of the people we've met throughout the film um spoiler alert but we we told you we were going to get here I don't say those words. I don't care. But yeah, yeah I know you don't. I know you don't. But, but you have, I, you, as the host, you have that, I guess, presumed responsibility to not pee off a bunch of weenies on the internet. But I, uh, I, I don't. I don't think anybody would would really care. Um, I don't know why I keep saying it. I think anybody that's listening this far kind of knows what we'd be going over they're, it. They're already into the podcast movie podcast game, and they know there's spoilers everywhere. So yeah. So much of the movie, uh, like, it depends on you never being certain that nuclear war has actually started. And it, they, they do a really good job of making it seem at several points like, oh, he just, he caused this chaos by telling a bunch of people and getting them worked up in his, uh, in his paranoia. Um, and you can see it spiraling out. As one of the ways I love how this escalates is that he tells the people at the diner, all the people at the diner kind of head off into the night. Uh, although the biggest group is going to go and get on an air helicopter and they're going to start heading towards Antarctica. Um, Supposedly fly in Antarctica where it's like immensely difficult to live. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you get, you get these, these parts of the movie where he runs across other characters who are freaking out. Like the most rest of the movie is mostly LA asleep and the streets are completely empty but every once in a while he'll run into these characters that are also preparing for armageddon because you can imagine they've been told by landa or uh somebody else who went and got their family member and the family member told everybody else um it's kind of eerie how news of this spreads throughout the rest or like over the course of the movie um when I think I, before we go any further, I think we should actually uh, backtrack to the beginning of the movie because we're talking about all this stuff, but we haven't really talked about what makes it so strange is that first tonal shift, you know, when we he gets that phone call. We're not talking about how the movie starts. Okay. We really should. We should really should. I mean, because we're talking about the middle of the film here and or at least a third of the way through the film. And and I mean, we should really talk about what happens at the beginning because it starts out like completely unlike the film it ends up being. I yeah, mean, no. and, and not in the, 
not in a from desk to dawn sort of way where it's like starts as one genre and ends up as another genre. But I mean, I guess there's a similar thing to it, but, um, but this, you go into this film believing this is just going to be a romantic comedy. Yeah. Cause they kind of have a, uh, Anthony Edwards and Mayor Winningham have this meet cute over the course of an afternoon at the La Brea Tar Pits where at the George C. Page Museum. Yeah. Yeah. Where where uh, they keep keep running across each other and are just kind of this silent flirtation over the credits. So I know you and I have both been to this museum. I think we went there together too, didn't we? At some point. I don't didn't Jen and I meet you at the museum at one point? Or was that no, I don't I don't believe you I don't believe so. So we've been there a couple of times, but yeah, I was here. gonna say I was gonna say I didn't get to that museum until you were living in LA though. I know that. Well maybe we um, did. I, I can't remember. I, I thought I we were on our own. I think we met you guys. I think we met you met you and Amber there. But regardless, um when I saw this movie the first time, I didn't even know what that museum was. Like me going to LA was not a thing that had happened at that point. And I never thought it would happen, you know, because I was just not a traveling person. And I never even thought I would live down here <laughs> in the area. So um, uh, I had no idea what this museum was. It looked glorious to me because I was like, I was super into paleontology, at, you know, well now, but also at the time I was more into it. And uh, I was just, I was like, what is this place? That place looks so cool, you know? And so I never thought I'd set foot in it, you know? So it's like, oh, it's the Lavaria Tarpets, you know? And I, you know, I'm mostly I know about those from a Bugs Bunny joke, you know? So it's like, um, you know, it's like, okay, that's pretty cool that this is in a movie. But yeah, never, never once did I consider that I would actually get to be where they actually film part of this movie. And honestly, at the point that I went, I had not seen the movie for a while. So I forgot about the museum, you know. So when I saw it again, I was like, holy crap, I've been there. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like that, that wall <laughs> of skulls. The wolf skulls was the the that, that when I rewatched it the first time after I got the Blu-ray, I was just like. I know what those wolf scars are. I know where they film this. This is so cool. Yeah. It's a bit different. That observation deck isn't there anymore. Um, right. They're, and they're, they're renovating it though. Right. But there's also a shot. I think they mentioned in the commentary, there's a shot where they're, uh, where they're supposedly in the museum, but they're, the mural is, a, is of 1930s Hollywood. And that's not in the museum. It's, apparently it's, it's at across the street at memory calendars. Um, and I guess it's still there. Um, but, uh, no, I didn't, I didn't hear that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but they inserted it into the museum sequence. So it looks like it's where he's pretending to be part of the mural and she walks past, you know, um, just kind of being like silly and cute. Um, but yeah, but the, the fact that it, it's, it's, it, yeah, they have the meet cute at the museum and that turns into them going out and hanging out for the day and all that. And, uh, and the next thing you know, they're they're arranging to now. I don't know. There's a there's a kind of a timeline here. It's it looks like they're this is all on the same day, but honestly, the, the amount of stuff they do during the day, it looks like they're having a relationship for like a week. Does that feel like, like that to you too? It does. It does. Uh, they they get around a lot for one day in L.A. Uh, right. Especially since it's before her shift, like because she has to Correct. leave to go to work, and. If she's working a full shift, that would have started at 
at like four in the afternoon. So they did all of this before four in the afternoon. <laughs> like it, 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 plus then they go to the concert that he's playing at and he's uh, playing. In, well, I think that's why he's at the museum is because he, he's playing uh, with the band in the park. And so he's killing time at the museum is what it looks like. That's the way I was taking it. Yeah. But I mean, it's a, it's a rom-com like it, they, right. they they do a montage they get through as much as they can um so I'm, I, I do want to, I, I do want to say that I think it's very very cool because this movie has an incredible supporting cast like I was gonna say that I've got that down that every single face even the even the smallest roles are like supporting actors that you have seen all over the place but I want to point out in this early scenes with their them at the park and all that that um uh her grandfather is played by john agar yeah the b-movie icon you know in, in a cheesy way for a lot of people but i love john agar you know so um it's very cool that he's in this movie and you know this was um i think he was yeah in his late 60s at this point but uh but he i'd seen him in so many you know late forties up to through the fifties and early sixties stuff that, you know, it's very cool to see him in this film. Well, I, I primarily know him from revenge of the creature and, uh, well, absolutely. yeah, Night a lot of, lot of movies. Yeah. But, the uh, mole people and tarantula. And oh all yeah. Sorts of yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Tarantula, of course. But yeah, yeah the, the year after this, he was in Nightbreed as well. Um, which yes, I, I kind of like have this image of him as an actor in the 40s when he's you know young and hale and hearty and then also the the couple of movies i know him from when he's in his 60s and he's a little bit well not a little bit he's much older and a little uh frailer that there's a bit decrepit yeah they they kind of like seem like two different people to me <laughs> like i i'm just like that's old john john agar and that's young right. john agar. yeah um but you're right that everybody in this cast is recognizable. I, to the, to the point where even characters that, that don't really get any focus are people you'll recognize. Um, I'm, I'm jumping ahead again, but there's a scene late when they're at the building where the helicopter is supposed to pick people up and there's a pair of women that come running up and they're, they have guns and they're talking about things that they need. They're friends of Landa, uh, a character in the diner. Right. And, yeah. One of them is Jeanette Goldstein from yes. Aliens and Terminator 2 and Lethal Weapon 2. And like the camera never really focuses on any of them for more than two seconds at a time. And it's just like this quick little scene that they're running through the scene with um, with uh, Harry and, and Julia or Julie. Julie. Uh, but yeah, everybody like we'll, we'll we can talk about it as we go through yeah. Well, Jeanette Goldstein is also in Near Dark, so uh, yeah, yes, uh, which is my favorite role of hers, actually. Yeah, I I would agree. I would agree. Uh, so yeah, this this whole like scene is is very. Uh, I mean, it's got the dreamy Tangerine Dream score. It's very quirky. It's very cute. Uh, they're 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 kind of corny, you know. Like it, there's a lot of corniness in this in these two characters really in the beginning. Um, and that's part of its game is to make you think that this is just a very silly, you know, comedic romp. 
you know, or I mean, if you're going to the film and you've seen the poster, you know what you're, what that there's more to it than that. But I mean, the early part of the film is is trying to convince you, hey, this is you know, I'm having this really cool romantic incident, you know, because he talks about at the end like he had, you know, he's never able to find love, and then he he meets the perfect girl, you know, the girl perfect girl for him. I, I, before we go any further, um, at the beginning of the film, he does a little voiceover. You see him on a rooftop. And he's playing his trombone, and uh, he you hear the narration say he had never thought about the big picture before this, or you know, I never thought much about the big picture. And then you notice, and they don't talk about it in the commentary, and so I but I feel like it's a joke that everybody misses or something like that. But on the end of his on, on the end of his trombone is a little tiny picture yeah. of <laughs> Mary Whittingham, his girlfriend, on the end, and so. He says the thing about the big picture while he's looking at a little picture. And <laughs> I just thought it was hilarious, but I, I expected the director to say something about it in either one of the commentaries and he never does. And I was like busting up, you know, cause it was like, Oh, the big picture and the little picture, you know, and it's just, it's just funny to me, I guess, you know, but no, I, I, yeah, I agree. That was, it had to be intentional, but that scene is so bizarre. Because it's out of place and it's almost like a it's almost like it's a not meant to be reality. No, because it's how would he have gotten a picture of her already, you know, unless they went to a photo booth or something like that, you know. It it can't be reality because I think I, I think we talked about what the timeline is supposed to be, but I think it is supposed to be one day. I don't I don't think it's gonna it's supposed to be several days or a week. Yeah, it just um, feels like a week. You know? Yeah, it's just but I don't mean that. It goes forever. I just mean it seems like they couldn't do all, as you said, they couldn't do all that in just like five hours, you know, in an afternoon, you know. But, the, but the oh, question... one, one more thing at the at the band scene, uh, sitting in front of him. So where and uh, when when he's playing his trombone solo, sitting in on the chairs in front of him with a clarinet is Peter Berg. Yeah. A very young Peter Berg. He's not even credited in the film, except he's he's a band member, right? Oh, he's 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 credited. Oh no, he's credited. He's credited in the film as a stand-in because he is he is the stand-in for Anthony Edwards in the film. I just but, watched this movie twice, and I swear in the credits he's credited as band member. Oh no, he's credited as band member, but he doesn't have a name, is what I meant. He's not credited with a name. Oh, okay, okay. That's what I meant. I said just as bad mem as band mem band member. So his character, he's not even a character in the film. He's just this guy playing in the same band as Anthony Edwards. But the reason he's there is because he was trying to get his SAG card. And so Dejarnet was 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 helping him get his SAG card by giving him that that role in the film. He was working as the stand-in for Anthony Edwards on the film itself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. Very very early role for him. Well, I want to go back just for a second because I think it's kind of important to the tone of the movie, to that opening scene, which is it pre-title? Like, is it just because I think it's yeah. that scene and then it goes to the credits? Right, I think so. Yes, it, it's it it can't really exist if the movie is only one day because, well, I mean, right? Could, where would he get the picture? But also, where would he? what what would the timeline be of him in the middle of the night looking out over Los Angeles and right. bemoaning this relationship? Because everything is so compacted. Like it, That's it, why it's so weird to me that it has to be a, it has to be a dream that he's having at the end of the film or yeah. a date or because 
the narration also makes no sense giving what happens at the end of the film. But that that also leads because the I mean, I'm not going to argue that this movie is all a dream, but I think the movie is supposed to be dreamlike and nightmarish the way everything escalates and the way things spiral out. I think it is it is trying to evoke the feeling of being in a nightmare. Um, so yeah. I think that, that opening... I, I, I too don't think the movie is a dream. I'm not. I'm not implying that it is a dream at all. I can see some people saying, "Well, it has because they because people just naturally want a happy ending to everything." I can see people going, "Oh, well, no, this, when he when he fell asleep in the bed, he was having this dream, and blah blah blah." You know, and it's like, well, we don't see where he wakes up. You know, it it ends terribly, and um, I, I don't mean in a bad way. I I, I don't mean <laughs> in a bad planned way. I mean it ends like very very much a downer. Um, but the way it ends, there's no way that the opening of this film can happen with him narrating and telling us his story, unless it's a situation like Sunset Boulevard, where he's like face down in a pool, you know, going, this is how I was murdered, you know, or this is how I died, you know. So um, it's if it's one of those things, that's fine. I accept that because, I mean, I accept Sunset Boulevard, the way they tell their story. But, you know, I, maybe they're ghosts telling the story. I don't know, you know, but. But yeah, I I not I do not for one second think this is a dream at all. I, no. I think this is what happens. Yeah, I don't I don't think so either. I think it's it, it's just meant to kind of give you a, a a little bit of that 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 feeling, like kind of just something else to evoke the feeling of unreality. Right. Um, because this movie is it. it where I mean, I keep wanting to jump ahead, but we'll get back and kind of discuss things more in order. But this movie, it it keeps slapping you back to some form of reality mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much of it that even once the the reveal happens and everybody is like scrambling to get to safety and get their loved ones and things are are snowballing, it still has moments of comedy, but they always end with a like a brutal slap of like no this is real like, this, this is a bad situation for these people and this is ending horribly and people are really getting hurt and um in a way that like it's such an kind of a delicate mix of tones because it's in a way that never feels um like off-putting like it, it the movie has kind of an inviting feeling to it at least for me there's something about it that just kind of like keeps you under its spell even when there's uh, you know pretty bad things going on on screen yeah yeah agreed um i i will say there's a deep sense of irony throughout the film also i mean it's it's um i mean it start when you go to the hotel scene when he goes back to his hotel to uh he's going to meet her when she gets off at like what was it 115 i think uh 12 12 15 Twelve fifteen. He's gonna meet her at twelve fifteen, and he goes back. He he goes back to his um um his hotel, and he's uh smoking. He, he's smoking on the balcony and all that stuff. And uh and there's a lot of smoking in this movie. And uh, he he's smoking on the balcony, and he flicks the cigarette away when he's done. And a pigeon picks up the cigarette. He goes to bed sets his alarm a pigeon picks up the cigarette that's still like lit right and flies it back to her nest and not knowing that it's going to set her nest on fire and the wire she's nesting on top of this electrical conduit and all that stuff and basically 
it fries the electricity in the building uh, after the nest sets on fire. And uh, and then his alarm doesn't go off. But it's just like this. It's like this chain of events, almost Rube, in a, like a Rube Goldberg kind of way. You know, there's just like, whoop, ding, ding, and then you know, no power. And then he wakes up and it's like 315 in the morning, you know. Well, I, I do want to say um, it, he's not like I just want to point out he is not done with the cigarette. He looks at it and flicks it off because I think he's he's trying to quit because she Mayor Winningham had had said right. that smoking will kill you or whatever. Uh, and yeah, and smoking so will kill you. I forgot about that. It, it's it is his decision to try and quit for her that leads to um, like in in one way, if he hadn't gotten that phone call, not much would have changed. Like the, the main event, like would still have happened. The, the it still happened. None of the story would have happened. You know, everything that happens, but you're right. But as I said, this is like a big Rube Goldberg device. When you think about it, it starts with him, her wanting him to quit smoking. So he flicks the cigarette away and then it leads to the entire chain of the movie. So in, in in some ways, the entire movie is a big Rube Goldberg device. Yeah. Uh, so he, he, like, as we said, he sleeps in, he races over and, you know, while he's at the diner in the middle of the night, um, he answers a payphone outside and it's this uh, uh, very frantic phone call from somebody who's saying they're, who believes they're calling the guy on the other end believes he's calling his father and warning him that he's got just over an hour to get out of wherever, like where in out of LA. Um, and it really freaks out Anthony, uh, I almost called him Anthony Anderson, Anthony Edwards, uh, who goes Harry, back in. Harry. Yeah, oh, it Harry. really freaks out Harry. He goes in and there's this really fun group of people at the diner and it's the guy kind of there sobering up uh, next to, and he's, he's like having some discussion. I can't figure out what they're, but they're trying to make a map uh, to figure out how to get somewhere. And it's this, uh, this guy in drag. Um, there's also a couple of street sweepers. One of them is uh, Claude Earl Jones, who listeners of this show would know he was in uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Um, I also just watched something else recently with him in it. I was trying to think about it. He's in Bride of Reanimator. That's what I watched recently. Yeah, yeah, what he's in. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a kind of like yuppie stockbroker played by Denise Crosby. Um, I don't want to say anything poorly about people, but this is maybe the only. Well, I won't say. I like her. Yeah. I will. I will say this is the best performance I've seen from her. <laughs> I was I, thinking the same thing when I was watching it. I was like, "Oh, well, we all hate Tasha Yar, but you know she's pretty good in this movie." So. Yeah, no, she's great in this. I like her. Her character has such like authority and like just takes charge in such a kind of like kind of like a quiet way, and everybody just is like, "Well, we're going to follow this person because this person knows what they're doing." That I well, I think it, it got me to it got me to wondering, is it just Tasha Yar's character that nobody liked, or is it was it Denise Crosby that nobody liked? I mean, it's in in Star Trek and uh, uh, Next Generation. You know, it's like um, because I remember I responded that I just didn't like the character. That was it wasn't necessarily the actress that I was. You know, how much of uh, how much of her performance in the show was was the thing that people didn't like, or was it just that was the character she was given and that's the way she performed it? But I mean, you know. 
Yeah, well, she didn't like that character either. So she wanted to go on the show. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm going to say, like, I, I don't like her really in Pet Cemetery either. Um, Take her or leave her. Yeah. I, I think, I think the casting in that movie, like, almost sinks it for me. Any, any, like, it, it, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of any of the casting in that movie except for uh, uh, Fred Gwynn. But um, we're getting, getting off topic. I don't want to sit here and badmouth somebody, but I think she's great in this movie in a way that I, yes. I don't, yeah. I don't always yeah. feel. Um, 100% agree with you. But like the drunk man in the diner is Earl Bowen. He's in, uh, yep. in the first three Terminator Everything. movies. Um, the, the cook is uh, Robert Dequee, Dequee. Um, he's, he's, you'll recognize him. Olean Jones is a waitress. Like I'm just saying everybody that you see in this movie is somebody. Alan Alan Rosenberg is is uh, uh, the guy who's talking, who's doing the math with uh, Clotterell Jones, who was on L.A. Law. Wait, he's doing the. He's Mike. Yeah, he's the guy sitting there at the counter. Oh my gosh! Clotter- yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't know why I was thinking like yeah, I, I was trying to remember what I re- recognized him from, but uh, everybody. Yeah, he was really young in this movie, and he's um, I think the. I, I want to say he's the brother of one of the producers or something like that. Okay. Um, so it, this, then it becomes like for a minute, this romantic comedy becomes a twilight zone style chamber drama of people's paranoia getting the best of them. And it, it escalates to the point where guns are drawn and, and fired and, uh, and ends with everybody racing off into the night, which, which kind of like takes the movie into the next phase. And I, I know everybody that brings this movie up brings up Scorsese's After Hours as a similar movie about like somebody going up. But that, that was kind of just a genre in the 80s that I actually, I always like it. The, the guy that finds himself kind of, or girl, that finds himself on the kind of like unseen side of life in the city where they, they just like through a one mishap or one little thing, they get stranded and go on this like journey <laughs> this I mean, it's, it's essentially it's essentially like a city bound version of a road trip movie you know where you you're just meeting character after character and you know it, it's very much like a vignette you know piled on top of a vignette and all that stuff um this movie has a little bit of that but i don't think it's the bulk of the film i think it's about maybe half the film is that way um but yeah i mean after hours is the movie i think mood wise after hours is what i think of when i watch this movie i kind of go well, I want to watch After Hours again. <laughs> it's like, but also um, elements of something wild, like which you mentioned earlier. Um, it does remind me a little bit of moments in that film, also, especially the tonal shifts, because something wild takes some wild tonal shifts, you know. So, um, but uh, but yeah, that's I mean that's the movie I immediately think of is, is After Hours, but um, but it's not because of the entire film; it's just for a section of it. Yeah it's the section after he gets out of the diner you know well the the once he leaves the diner he's in the truck and he realizes that they're not going to go and get julie so he he jumps from the truck um this is i think the second time where the movie takes like the movie takes a turn but that is signified by him waking up right like the there's a scene the scene when he falls asleep he 
the camera is an extreme close-up of his eyes and his eyes open and he's they stay on them for a little bit before he sits up and starts getting ready for his date and doesn't realize that he's overslept and then this he he kind of like falls unconscious for a, a bit like a couple seconds after he jumps from the um from the truck and is wakes up just in time for these motorcycles to race by him on because he's on an on-ramp and uh he thinks it's a car coming towards him and he doesn't yeah. realize he doesn't the two headlights and doesn't realize it's two separate motorcycles that split around him you know but that's that's a like that's another signifier that this movie is kind of like trafficking in dreams is that the main character keeps waking up throughout and every time yes. he wakes up the movie is about to get a little bit worse for him <laughs> yeah yeah it's a recurring motif and they do it very well so the character he meets here i want to talk about a bit michael michael t williams um yeah whose, whose name is misspelled in the credits michael uh, t williams is he he's such a fun character um I, I i was surprised when i was watching the commentary that it was written for a white surfer dude that's why the character is going back to venice and uh it was fun to hear steve DeJarnet on the care on the commentary say that like he realizes switching it to from a white surfer dude who's stealing car radios to uh you know uh african-american yeah it gives it a, a an unfortunate racial overtone, um, but he he says that in the commentary he just says Michael T. Williams was like such a good actor that they couldn't like they had to have him for the role. They were like, oh, he's the best one for it. Um, so he, I, he maybe he kind of feels a little bit bad for that, but uh, he's so he's so good in this. They have like every character that you meet isn't going to be around for long, but he's probably the one that's around the longest. I think. Other than Mayor Winningham, yeah, he's um, in a couple of different scenes in the film, yeah. And uh, this this is where the movie like starts to feel again like it's heading back into comedy, like dark comedy, like that after hours style comedy, because they have like the, they have banter these two characters. Like he, um, there, there's you know there's misunderstandings and there's kind of funny dialogue, but it ends with one of the first most shocking moments of violence when they stop to get gas and um well oh god his name is escaping me right now even though i just like the gas station attendant oh is, edward bunker ed okay ed bunker comes out and Western holds reservoir dogs and yeah. he's a screenwriter and he was a, a former convict and he uh he co-wrote uh, runaway train and all sorts of stuff but uh um yeah he uh um i think danny danny trejo is the godfather of edward bunker's son or something like that they're oh, they're friends they, they, they were all serving yeah he was serving time at the same time with trejo in Folsom, and uh and so he was they were close friends yeah that makes but sense. most people know him as mr blue in reservoir dogs yeah um the one we never see what happens to him <laughs> right he comes out with a shotgun holds him a shotgun because he thinks that michael t michael t williams is holding him up um the cops come by and see this guy holding somebody at shotgun so they like they get him down on the ground there's some misunderstanding there but 
Michael T. Williams to get out of the situation when the cops start to realize like, oh no, we got to research this guy and this guy, he doesn't want to be like deal with the cops because he has a bunch of stolen stuff in his trunk. He sprays them with gasoline and the, the woman cop anyway, and the woman. No, he sprays two people. He sprays them both with gasoline. Yeah. And she raises her gun and she fires it into the air, which lights her on fire. And then he runs in to try and put her out and he's been doused in gasoline and is lit on fire. And it's, it's a scene that's like, it's, it's kind of farcical that there's misunderstandings. Yes, there's danger to it, but it ends so suddenly. And that, that violence is so brutal and shocking that, uh, like I said, it's one of those moments that kind of slaps you back to what, what the reality of the situation would be. There's also that great shot when they, they get away from the gas station and you see the explosion in the background. And that's like, it's kind of like your first hint of the bigger explosion that will happen later. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, I mean, we're, we're kind of just going through the plot here, but it, this movie is kind of so like, I, like you were saying, like it's full of vignettes. So we to kind of discuss the movie. We've just got to discuss the plot. Um, I, don't, I don't think we need to touch on all the vignettes, but you know, it's like, but some of them stand out more than others, you know? Well, so we'll just kind of jump a little bit ahead. He gets to, Mayor Winningham's apartment that she shares with her grandmother and her grandfather, like we talked about earlier, is John Agar. Uh, They live in separate buildings. They haven't spoken in 15 years, even though they love each other, but they just can't be around each other. They don't even remember what the argument's about. Um, He gets them all together. I think there's a deleted scene here, because doesn't he go to John Agar's apartment first to get the address, but he doesn't I don't know. I can't. I can't remember quite how John Agar is there. He's like outside, like he's come along with Harry. But anyway, they. I like the reconciliation between the two, the grandparents, and how they decide they they're right just back into arguing. Yeah. What, what's that? They go right back into arguing. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's it, it, it. That's really funny because they're about they're leaving and they're about to like they're having a they're jumping into a very loud fight. And then they stop and like just start laughing, but they decide they're just going to go and spend their last half hour on earth at Cantor's Deli, getting a meal uh, and talking, which they haven't done in 15 years. Um, Right. And Mayor Winningham doesn't really know what's going on. She thinks that Harry has woken her up in some sort of grand romantic gesture. And she's just kind of like, no, let's just go have breakfast. I don't want to go on a balloon ride or anything. Let's just go. Like she doesn't, he's hiding it from her, which is kind of like, I think he's trying to be nice, but also it's kind of like, oh, you should, he, he should probably just, I don't know, maybe he shouldn't tell her because everybody else he's told it's just ended in violence and death. Right. But I mean, the well, I mean, the grandparents took it differently, you know, so I mean, they took it to say, oh, well, we're going to go off and do our thing. So they were, you know, not okay with it, but they were, they were calm about it. And they decided to kind of, kind of tidy things up before they go. But uh, they, they took it a lot better than he's imagining she would. Um, but she seems, did I, I, I've always been confused by this. Did she like take a sleeping pill or something like that? She's kind of dazed when she gets up. Yeah. She took an Ambien and that's what I was. Okay. Yeah. The, the mother mentions it when he's like, does she yeah, always sleep this world? But yeah. And he says, does she always sleep this different or this deeply? And the grandmother says, oh, she took an Ambien and that's right. When I just watched it again before we started recording, and on this record or on this viewing, I noticed that after he's 
she goes back home thinking that Harry has stood her up. It cuts to a close-up of the Ambien bottle and the camera pulls out from that for the discussion that she's having with her grandmother. Right, that's right. Okay, I remember but, that now. I think I just kind of let let it go. But I I do I do kind of think about this movie from her point of view from this moment on, like because she's waking up and doesn't really know what's going on, <laughs> and it, it, except there's craziness everywhere. And at first, it just seems like like well, it's not. It's still, it's still quiet, and her grandparents are in like a great mood. As like, she goes along, though, there's more and more craziness, and he has no. For a while, at least, he has he gives her no explanation, and so yeah, what's she supposed to think of everything that's happening? You know, it's like, um, yeah. Well, it, I think I think they they don't or she doesn't really see any craziness until they get to the roof, right? The roof. And Kurt Fuller is there. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, one of my faves. I love Kurt Fuller. He is giving such a performance. <laughs> like, oh, he always does. He, he he digs into everything. There's a couple of moments in this where he feels like he is performing for he is performing for the back row. <laughs> like he's performing for the cheap seats. Like it looks like a stage performance where he has to be as big as possible. But you just imagine that this guy. He's, he works in finance. He's been up all night. He has just taken every single drug there is in the world. <laughs> and he's like uh, ranting and raving and preparing for the end of the world that he doesn't quite believe is coming, but he's like so stoned out of his mind. It, it, a lot of the stuff that he says, like pretty vile. And some of his actions are just like some of the worst that happen. Oh, yeah. Um, but it, his performance has so, he's like, he is so compelling in this. <laughs> he's giving it all he's got. Yeah. And he's only in, he's only in a couple scenes, but man, he's, he's huge in those scenes. Well, yeah, your eye is drawn to him every time, even when the helicopter is taking off at the end and he's just like, like standing there in the background, like far background of the building, like just staring off into the distance. You're still just looking at him because he's, he's still <laughs> off doing his own thing. So I think that's when, that's probably when she realizes that, uh, uh, like things are not like they're not going off to some romantic <laughs> getaway. Um, and then uh, after this, he, he goes off to get a, find a pilot. And this is when I start to like really realize how well the movie has, Oh shoot. I think I skipped over Michael T. Williams or Williamson. Williamson. Yeah. Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> Wilson is a character name. Oh, Wilson, yeah. Like Wilson went to go get his sister, and his sister is Kelly Jo Minter. She doesn't have any lines in the movie as it is. I guess there's a deleted scene with her. Um, Correct. But he comes back and basically crashes the car, and uh, there's a and dies. And it's such a like th this whole segment is kind of the the eeriest and most haunting to me in starting with how he carries his dead sister or dying sister up the escalator which is not running yeah. but once he steps on it it starts running so he's just walking in place and there's something so kind of like pathetically tragic and tragic comic about it and then he falls and asks to be killed um meanwhile they're surrounded well, by the Wants Harry to shoot him. The, yeah. the mercy. Yeah. 
and and Harry cannot cannot do it. He only fires the gun, I think, once in the film. Um, I think I think twice because he shoots. Yeah, he shoots. I think once he jumps off the truck, he's like, I must be dreaming. And he shoots the gun. In the oh, he, okay. Yeah. He, that's the first time he shoots it. Yeah. At, and after he points the gun at himself to look at it, look in <laughs> it, and then um, turns it around. And uh, I, the director was talking about how, well, one, that's like, you have to make sure you have an actor who's not going to accidentally <laughs> you know, shoot themselves. Because that gun has, some, it has a blank in it, but at that range, that's going to kill them. Right. You know, so. Yeah, well, um, oh man, I mean that—that's a whole conversation we can have right now. Because all he does, he, he points it at himself, and then he turns around and fires it. He doesn't like, like, you don't see him like, like hit, hit a safety or anything like that. He just fires it, you know. So. Yeah. Well, hopefully that sort of behavior will change. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think there's gonna be a lot of gun change changes in the way guns are handled in movies now. So you know. Yeah. Uh, so no, the the scene. This leads to one of the the most eerie scenes in the movie because they're surrounded by cops. The cops have been chasing after Michael, well, Wilson, I'll say. They've been chasing after Wilson. And so they're in this department store surrounded by cops and you hear the cops keep demanding they come out. And then when they start like, we're, we're coming out, we're coming out, it's eerily quiet. And there is like, one you hear like cars speeding off and they come out and like you see the the SWAT vehicles racing down the street. Somebody like comes down on a line, like repels down and like falls and like they all run away. Um, he chases whole, after the van. Yeah, that whole scene where it's just like suddenly very quiet and they come out and like where everybody, where is everybody is, is one of the spookiest to me in the movie. Um, yeah, it's because they've obviously been told that something's going to happen and they get out of there, you know, so they've obviously got word of, of what the, the impending uh, missiles. So. And we got, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, oh my gosh. I'm not seeing him on, I'm not seeing him in the cast. The guy who ends up who? piloting the helicopter. Brian Thompson. Who? Brian Thompson. Okay. They said Brian X-Files. Uh, yeah. No, Brian Thompson, the, um, the alien bounty hunter on X-Files. That's what I was going to say. I know him as an alien bounty hunter. Um, Everybody does. Yeah. He's so... Uh, yeah, he his character like really fascinates me because, as they say in the commentary, he's basically the, the, the truest hero in the movie, <laughs> even though yeah. he kind of like is a bit mercenary in the beginning. He's like, well, give me the money and I'll fly you out of here. Um, he basically just wants to get his boyfriend to safety and which you do not expect <laughs> you know it's like he's in an all-night gym but you do not expect oh you know oh there's somebody i want to take with me and then he comes in this is leslie you know and there's this like cute dude you know that he brings in and it's like oh okay before that you have no clue that he's you know gay or anything like that it's and just, he's like, is, just this a pro- is this a problem and then he he anthony edwards kind of just like no 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 no, no problem at all, all. Yeah. um but but i guess we can take a, a brief aside here is that this movie does have a little bit of it in like it is celebrated a little bit by the lgbtq community in that 
it has a trans character. It has positive gay, you know, uh, characters and in it's it. It's never uh, remarked upon. They just are. Like, it is not at all remarked upon. That that nobody makes a point out of it, like, oh, that crazy guy in a dress. It's just Roger. <laughs> and yeah. nobody, like, the, the, the most remarked upon is him saying, do you have a problem with this? And then it's not, like, it, that's it. The movie doesn't ever say, like, it, it's not even done as a joke. It is, I mean, it is unexpected, but it's not like that you would expect something like an 80s movie could make a joke out of it or a gay panic, like, oh, isn't this silly kind of thing. And it doesn't. It just like says it. And it's like, is that a problem? And no, 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 no. And the movie moves on away from it. Yeah. But he ends up being like the only hero of the movie because he returns for them a little bit like uh, Bishop and Aliens where they think they've lost their chance, but then here in the midst of the missiles incoming, the helicopter arrives and he's in the pilot seat. He's spitting up blood. Like, I wonder what his adventure was. And he just, uh, he's like, I told you I'd be back. And like, or he says, I told you I'd be there, which I kind of wondered if they wanted him to say, I told you I'd be back because he does look a little bit like the Terminator. And he, I believe, was in the Terminator also. Um, yeah, he yeah. gets, he, he gets yeah, the clothes, right? He's the guy that yeah, Arnold gets yeah. the clothes from. But yeah, he shows up and he's he's bleeding. Like he's he's apparently been through some shit, but he's also gotten everybody to where they need to go. And he's dropped off his boyfriend. Um, you kind of wonder what happened. What happened to the boyfriend? What happened? Who shot him or whatever happened? Uh, you wonder what happened to Landa. You wonder what happened to all of these other people that kind of went off and did their own thing or, or showed up for a minute and were not seen again. Um, in the commentary, Steve Darjanet did say that he he gets to ask that a lot and he does kind of have ideas about what people would, what happened to people. He says that he, he, uh, he writes now mostly literature that he, he was uh, thinking about writing a story about everybody's adventures in Antarctica, <laughs> like what happened to those characters. Um, he, he had a book come out last year, a collection of short stories. I actually looked at it. It does not look like that story made it in there. So maybe he didn't actually write it, but um, yeah. it, I mean, I'm fine not knowing, but it, it, it is interesting to think that he has that material. He does have that idea of what, what people are going through. I personally think those people did not even make it out of the out of the state. So yeah, you know, it's like according according to his answer, he does seem to think they at least made it to Antarctica, but I don't yeah, see I think that would be a far stretch, especially with I mean I mean I, I you know how far that is to Antarctica and then with the oh, world blowing yeah. up nuclear explosions, I mean I I just I just don't see them getting very far at all that's just yeah if anything they get they get pretty far he's, down he's the creator and he can come up with something and make it plausible then you know sure what that if anything they'd probably make it to you know Mexico. as far in, in, as far down in south america as they could i guess yeah and then we get this is pretty much the ending the missiles come in uh kurt fuller is <laughs> uh you know still there on the rooftop and blinded and the EMP knocks out the helicopter and they crash into the La Brea, the La Brea tar pits where the whole movie started. And, um, you know, we get, I, I guess we didn't say, but the beginning of the movie is basically Carl Sagan talking about the birth of the cosmos and evolution. Not Carl Sagan. Not oh, Carl not. Sagan. Who is it? No, 
they got the rights to use the footage from Cosmos, but Carl Sagan decided not to be part of it. They had asked him if he wanted to have his voice in the in the movie, and he decided not to because it was kind of at the time where he wanted to be, you know, he wanted to be taken more seriously as a scientist and not get involved with entertainment and stuff. I mean, he wanted to be. So no, it's it's just another voice. It's not his voice, and because it's clearly not. I mean, I know Carl Sagan's voice back and forth. That is not Carl Sagan's voice. Yeah, and I guess I should have never, realized too. He also never says billions and billions, which would have been Carl Sagan's big line. They they have the line about star stuff, but that's not said the way that Carl Sagan says star stuff. So they didn't even get somebody who even sounded close to Sagan. That is not his voice. Um, okay, all right. Yeah, um, I but it is, I, I should notice it is video from, and they actually, and he does say. Uh, uh, Dejernet says on the on the soundtrack that they could not get Carl Sagan. I, I really should have noticed that. But anyway, the the this uh, this brings the movie full circle. We get this ending where it, it's really striking. Uh, like I love this um, composite shot from out when they're looking out the window of the helicopter because the helicopter is sinking in the La Brea Tar Pits, even though. It was filmed in a pool. It's clearly just dark water, not the tar pits. Um, yeah, they said it was like a four-foot helicopter in a swimming pool. That's how they filmed it. Yeah, but they're they're yeah. stuck inside and they're going to be drowning. And this composite, this composite shot, so uh, like cool looking of the very much the, so the mammoth in the tar pit, the the mammoth statues down there. You see and, red in the, the sky. It's kind of like a reddish color going on, you know. So, and there's there's a uh, a burning palm tree behind it, and it looks really cool. And they have like Harry is trying to freak Julie, or sorry, freak Harry is trying to calm Julie down because Julie is just completely freaking out. And they admit that they love each love each other, and like I I called the movie the ending kind of swooningly romantic because he has this this the story about how Superman can, you know, hold a piece of coal in his hand and make it into a diamond and that that's going to happen to them over whatever period of time, that maybe they'll be dug up some, by some scientists in the future. They're going to be in the tar pits like all of those dire wolves. And the movie starts, I mean, the movie ends where it started was at the La Brea tar pits. So that's, yeah. that's the full circle part of it is that, you know, they they start out looking at fossils, not knowing that eventually they will be <laughs> they will be fossils in the same place. You know, so and yes, over it we've got Tangerine Dreams, great great score. I mean, I love this stuff. I love their like kind of dreamy synth and like yeah. I'm not a not I'm okay. I have a bunch of their stuff. I have many of their soundtracks. I'm not especially a fan of them because I just find the music. I, I think the music works in the movie just fine. I, I love the mu music in the movie, but I would never, I mean, just personally, I would never listen to it outside the movie. That's just the way I am. Yeah, I don't, well, that's, that, I mean, if I wanted to fall asleep, I would, but you know, it's, <laughs> in a movie, it works great, you know, because I mean, that's, it's designed for it, you know, but their their music does nothing for me outside of the film. Uh, you know, like I, even, I don't know. Maybe I haven't actually listened to the soundtrack on its own, but I do like it. Right. You and I have slightly different tastes. We places we cross over in a lot of areas, but we also, I'm not as much of a synth guy as I know you're like into more stuff that has that and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm not as much. You know, I'm more of a rock guy. But uh, yeah, I, I I guess I just like the kind of like dreamy ethereal stuff. 
Um, oh, I love, I love, I, I like dream pop just fine, but I don't find, I find that if there were vocals with it, then I'd be probably better with it. You know, I do like, I like, I do like dream pop sounds and stuff, but I like vocals with my, you know, that type of stuff. I, oh, I do too. I do too. It, it isn't something I listen to all the time. You put Jimmy Cruz on it and I'm totally listening to it all day long. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I prefer lyrics uh, to instrumentals. I agree. Yeah. This is this is maybe something if I were putting it on, it would it would be at night because I do like this at, at night. Like, turn the lights off, laying down, just like. Yeah, it would put me to sleep. That's <laughs> so, what I would do. That's what I would use it for. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, uh, a little brief sidebar here, um, because somebody has come and joined me here at the table. They're trying to be as quiet as possible sitting on this chair and uh persephone is here do you want to say hi persephone okay. you know who this is right yeah hi yeah, persephone hello say hi hello can you hear her hi yep i can hear okay it's rick yep it's the person you tell me to call every day <laughs> She she's also like she's smiling, but she's very sleepy, and she's probably I don't know she wants to yeah, talk. Yeah, that's okay. You don't have to talk. Well, we're gonna we're doing our podcast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we're, we're. I'll get back into it. She's not gonna talk. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, then the movie does not cut to black. It fades to white, <laughs> and then. You you do get the the sound of an explosion over eventually over this and the credits start. Um, right. So uh, in in one way it is the bleakest possible ending, but in the other way I like I really like it. It it gives it. I don't know. It doesn't. I, I feel I feel there's closure to it. I I, I feel it. I feel it sums up the story it started telling at the beginning, and I I don't have a problem with it. I don't mind downers of endings, you know. I don't necessarily think they're downers. I just feel well that they told that story, and that's the way it ended. Well, um, I, I, I'm not somebody who needs a happy ending and everything. A lot of my friends, I had friends that watched this movie with me in a theater, and they hated the ending, and that's just because they were happy. They're happy ending people. That's just I um I I. I I have friends that saw Pink Floyd the Wall with me, and of course I walked out because I was like, I saw Pink Floyd the Wall, and yeah, it's depressing and it's like crazy and all that stuff. And they were just like, Oh, why did we sit through this thing? <laughs> you know, it's like, um, well, that but, one, that one cinematically does have kind of a happy ending. It's people picking up the pieces. It's people right, and, up the and, I, and I had my 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 friend my friend Wayne. I I, I said to him, I said. I, he said, oh, it's just so depressing. And I said, yeah, but at the end of the movie, there's hope. And he goes, fuck hope. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I just always remember that he said that, you know, it's like, fuck hope. You know, we argued about it all the way back home. You know, it was just like, um, but uh, it was, you know, and and, and there and uh, some of the same people were with me at this movie. And I, I just remember some of them did not care for the film all that much you know it was just it just didn't play with them the same way some of those a couple of them liked it you know just fine but uh um but yeah it's uh uh it's not for everybody's taste it's for my taste so uh, i you know not that i want all films to end badly you know or in the set in a sad fashion but i think this movie sums up just perfectly it, it tells its story well 
Well, I, I think I said this before on a previous episode with you uh, that I share Roger Ebert's motto of no good movie is depressing. Um, which, yeah. it, which maybe is not a hundred percent absolutely true, but this movie's ending is, can be seen as a downer, but it does not depress me. Um, there is you a could, sadness. You could, you, could be, you could be happy that you saw a good piece of art. Yes. There is a sadness to it. Obviously, I think that's that. There is also, as I've said, a romanticism to it. There is yeah. kind of this, this like kind of kind of realist romanticism to the idea that like look we're we're going to be one of these fossils in the future somebody is going to look over us which is kind of like maybe a morbid look at more in one way a morbid look at mortality but in another kind of like this this optimistic like things are going to go on in the future like none of this will have mattered this will but will be preserved in a way um, that I, I, I just love. And the movie sends me off on kind of like a complicated mix of emotions, which is both like, like, oh, that's sad, but also like, that's really lovely. <laughs> um, and there's a deleted ending, which I'm sure you've seen. It's on the Blu-ray. Yeah, and, I, not like yeah. I didn't like it either. And it's not even really an ending. Like, a, it's almost not worth mentioning or putting on a DVD where just these kind of CG diamonds kind of come into the frame and spin off and then it goes to black and then the credits start. And that's the yeah, only I, difference. Yeah. And I, I think, I, I think people knew about it and they just wanted to see it. It's like, well, there's supposed to be another ending to this thing and blah, blah, blah. And then it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's literally 10 seconds of animation of a, of two diamonds. And it's like, you and it would just adds it would add a level of cheesiness to the ending that I just I think would actually make me like the film less. No, I agree. It's kind of like a, a visual literalization of something that they've already just said. <laughs> like they've already said yeah. it perfectly. Don't need it. Don't need it. Yeah. Just believe it from his words. You know, yeah. it's that's all. You, that's what she's supposed to do. So that's what you should do. So, um. I think we're, we're well. We were already at the end. Is there anything else you want to point out, or anything else that you think we didn't well, cover? I, I want to say, I, I want to say, and and mind you, I went into this film. I actually came out of watching it a couple times in a row here, uh, liking the film even more than I did going in. And I already liked it pretty well. I didn't think it was a great film, but I think it's a very enjoyable film. But honestly, I think this is even a better film than I went in. Yeah, I, I I actually moved it up a star in my rating system, so it was just like. Uh, I think this movie, I'm going to actually be watching it more and more going forward in my life because one, it just, I, I just think it's very, in, in a very enjoyable piece of work. I mean, it's, it's just, everything in it is just a lot of fun. Even, even with the sad ending, it's still a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's a crazy ass movie and seeing the way people are acting both during the pandemic and, you know, at the end of it, um, you know, it, I'm seeing a lot of the attitudes of the people who are going crazy in this movie today, just in re regular life. So it's like, it might be a little bit prescient in a lot of ways, you know, you know, in a way uh, it is in another yeah. way, like it took him 10 years to get this made. He was starting to make it in 78, which means that by the time it came out and hit theaters, like the cold war paranoia that, uh, that started it. Yeah. That started everything had passed or just not, or not even passed. passed. It's like five years away still, but yeah. 
but it was uh it, like we weren't living in the same world we were now friends with russia by the time right. uh by the time this came out or we're starting to what hadn't completely uh, it was defrosting gorbachev was around and all that yeah yeah but. so it was in a in a like it was just a kind of slightly different world. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess yeah. Berlin Wall was like a year away, so coming down. So, yeah. Uh, which, uh, but then you know, things change and time comes around, and now we're we're like that 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 doomsday clock had kind of like ticked back a little bit, and now it seems to be right on yeah. track again. Um, so. Uh, I agree. I agree. It felt a little prescient. I, I just, I will watch this again. I already want to show it to Amber. Um, I, I'm just kind of like amazed by how, I, I mean, I understand studios being afraid of this movie. I understand that he had trouble getting this made because it, it could so easily fall on one side or the other. It's a tightrope he's walking between being too, too much of any one thing like too um too cynical or too i I would say somehow the film comes off as not political whatsoever there's no politics there's no politics at all it's just you know they don't even name who's doing what it's just it's happening that's it i i didn't mean to say that this was i i just mean like I, mean, I didn't. I, I didn't think you said anything. I just. I was just saying on my own terms that yeah. I, I find the film not to be political at all. It's just what it is, you know. Well, so. I, I. I just. I'm saying I can understand studios thinking like, oh, nobody's gonna, gonna get this, yes. and, and the movie is gonna be a mess because you agree it could so easily be a mess. But it, it came out, and I think it is, um, exactly what he intended, and it. it straddles the line so perfectly that that it came out and it like whether or not it's a great movie or whatever i think it is a complete and unique piece of art like everything he's done has worked together to create this artifact (laughs) like there's nothing that feels out of place in it now you you i uh, what's your take on cherry 2000 that's his previous film well that can be a subject for another one of these because i have not seen that and I just realized, oh goodness. oh, goodness, we're gonna have fun. I, I realized, like, looking at this, I'm like, oh, he directed Cherry 2000. I never saw that. I'm gonna have to yes. watch that. All right, yes, we're gonna have man. See, now that could have been the double feature. <laughs> so, no, no, this is good. Like, we've we've kind of gone deep on this on this one, yeah, um, absolutely. And which I, which is I what think... we did on the blog, which is that's how we handle the blog, is that, yeah, just went deep into a film, yeah. And those are up there. Those those old blogs are up there. If people want uh, visiting yeah, and revisiting, blogspot.com. Um, I I I so wanted to get back to doing that, um, but we all we both had kind of things coming up in our lives uh, that um, just made it like it, it wasn't our focus. So I'm really glad. And uh, if this ends up being a backdoor pilot, like I would love to keep doing this. Uh, Absolutely. But this was fun. So, um, what do you? What else? Do you, do you have anything else you want to say, or are we? No. Um, yeah, I was just. I was just gonna say. Uh, um, I spent the last three days watching all eight hours of the Beatles Get Back on Disney Plus. I need to start that. 
And you guys have Disney Plus? I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, good. Uh, yeah, we we watched uh, we watched each episode each day it was released. So we finished it today before the before we started recording this, and uh, uh, I just had so much fun. It is not if you're going in thinking you're just going to see a documentary about the Beatles. It's not. I mean, it starts out with a little bit of 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 Beatles history up until what happens in this movie so it's it you it's like it's like a 10 minute section it is beatles did this and 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 then it goes boom 1968 and you're just like oh 1969 and uh in january and then the the film it just goes day by day through these 22 days in january of 1969 when they're they start out in one studio uh recording being filmed while they're recording supposedly a new album then they moved to Apple Studios because they didn't like the first one. And then they go to the rooftop concert, which they show in its entirety. And uh, it's a lot of the stuff that was filmed. It was this was to film the movie Let It Be event, you know, that would come out as Let It Be eventually. Um, but uh, there's so much more. And like Peter Jackson went through like 60 hours of video and 150 hours of audio. And he's pieced together this incredible uh this incredible document of of the beatles at a certain point in history when they very nearly break up but when you watch the film it you see the love between the four of these guys i mean there's a lot of arguing and stuff going on but you see genuine moments of joy when you see the friends that are creating all this artwork together and it you you're watching the songwriting process it's like it's like just long, long takes of of them working on music and working on, on you know, trying to working on lyrics and, and and watching Let It Be become a thing and watching uh, a lot of their songs just be created right there in the studio. It's if you're a Beatles fan, it is an absolute must. If you're a casual Beatles fan, it might be a little too much, but uh um, my mother-in-law told me yesterday, she said, oh, be, or my wife did, I think I think Jen told me, but or one of them told me that B- Peter Jackson's preferred cut of this is 18 hours long. And I'm just oh like, God. <laughs> please put that out because I will watch and devour every second of it. I did not get tired of it. I was just like, yeah, I can just watch these guys every day. You know, I like, I would love to be in that room, except for all the smoke. I would love to be in that room because <laughs> there's so much smoking going on it, and there's warnings on every episode about how much tobacco use there is because <laughs> they are just smoking nonstop in like um and it's it's it, but it's i mean it, it's it's just incredible the rapport between not just them but linda and and yoko being in the same room and yoke and at one point paul even says 50 years from now, you know, people are going to be saying Yoko, the Beatles broke up because Yoko sat on an amp or something like that, you know? And, uh, and so they're, they're aware of the reputation she has with the fans and all that stuff, you know, where people are bad mouthing her and stuff. But Paul is admitting right there that, you know, it's not her, you know, it's, it's not her causing anything. She sits there and she's quiet most of the time and she takes part in conversations once in a while. And it, there's even several parts where she's like singing, like her doing her crazy, you know, scream stuff into a microphone. They're jamming and she's like screaming and stuff. And it's just a lot of fun. They're having a ball and they all clearly love it, you know. So it's like, I don't know. It, it, it's it's pretty interesting 
Um, and, and of course, they're also mocking all the things that people say about them in the press and stuff, like telling, you know, all the lies they're reading in the press about them, where they got into fisticuffs. It's like, we've never punched each other. What's going on? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> so it, it's pretty amazing that this material was just sitting there for years and years and years. And now they're, you know, finally doing something with it. But um, absolutely recommended. Well, that, yeah, I, I definitely will have to watch it. It's just yeah. that. That is eight hours is a pretty big time. It, it is a chore if you're, yeah, I mean, for even a fan, it's like you've got to carve out time to watch it, you know? And the, like the second one is like just shy of three hours long. And it's like, whoa, you know? And so, but I just said to Jen, we're watching, we're watching these each day. We're going to watch one of them. And I said, we're going to get through it. Cause I said, if you don't want to watch it, I'm going to watch it anyway. So it's like, and I'll probably start rewatching it again soon, you know? Cause I, you know, I did not get tired of it. I could just listen to them goofing around in the studio all day. It's so funny. And so, but there's also scary moments in it where they're, you know, you, you think, oh, this is going to erupt into something terrible, you know? Yeah. Um, I, it's on my list. I definitely will have to though. Um, the, the, what I've been watching lately actually has been uh, uh, James Bond movies and Jackie Chan movies. Uh, oh yeah. I'm, I'm kind of getting, prepped to watch no time to die i'm, I'm just gonna rent it later this week um yeah i need to go to theater i i can't i can't i'm just not i know i know you're not there yet i know you're not there yet uh but i'm so i'm gonna i'm gonna rent it but also yeah. i i just got in the you know an urge to watch police story and i watched that in police story two and and i put oh, on, so good so and, good and then i put on uh the first drunken master and what's been cracking me up is i'm kind of watching them in pieces because um, my youngest daughter persephone has been watching them alongside me and she is so amazed like she just fixated on jackie immediately and was like was like he's a superhero and like yep we were watching i i I want to start live tweeting them because we were watching drunken master and he there's a moment where he kind of scurries up a tree and she was like wow how do you do that? How do you climb up a tree like a lizard? And like, she she kind of starts to pantomime, which, you know, maybe you, you worry about kids doing that, but she's kind of pantomiming some of the jumping and kicking and stuff. And it's the most engaged I've ever seen her in a movie that's not animated. <laughs> oh, wow. Is, is watching like Jackie Chan. And so I might, I might start to kind of like skip around because some of the stuff could get a bit boring. Like I know the police story too got a little bit, like she stopped paying attention for that one because that that one's kind of a bit dull. But um, or if you're in it just for the action, that is, there's not as much. Um, but yeah, it, it is so much fun to watch her enjoying these like these movies, uh, and it's super fun to revisit them. Like a lot of them I haven't seen in a long time. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, I need I need to get around to that. You know, you mentioned the Blank Check podcast to me last week. So I started listening to it and I, there's like 350 episodes. I, yeah, I don't even know how you must've mentioned it before. And I just didn't get to it, but um, I'm loving it. But um, I had to figure out where to start. I didn't want to start 10 years ago when they started it or whatever, you know? So, um, so I decided to just pick up the latest series that they're doing, which is John Carpenter. I said, well, this is a good reason for me to watch John Carpenter films again. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I went to the first episode, started with Dark Star. And uh, so I'm watching the movie and then I'm watching, um, I'm watching the movie and then I'm watching, I'm listening, then I'm listening to their episode. And then I just 
uh, watched Assault on Precinct 13 for a couple of times. I, I watched it like twice, once with the, uh, the commentary. And then I jumped over to their podcast. So I'm just doing that one. And then I'm going to skip Halloween. I'm going to listen to their Halloween episode, but I'm not going to watch the movie because I watch that all the time. And then I'm going to like go to the fog, you know, and so on, you know, but they go through his entire. So I'm just finding it as an excuse to slowly go through all the Carpenter's films again. And yeah. when I'm done with it, I'll pick one of their other mini series that they do. And, and I'll pick another director and, and start watching those. Maybe, you know, I don't know who, but. Yeah, I started listening a uh, two or three years ago and at the time I was like I was thinking like oh I'll start at the beginning so I did listen to all of their early episodes which were for the first 30 episodes it was all about the Star Wars prequels um, yeah and they interesting. Did, yeah they did 10 episodes for each movie and right it was kind of it was entertaining because it was it was fun listening to them try and find a new angle every episode <laughs> like and they would focus on little like side characters and they would like create their own lore with for what those characters were and um i know he does the george lucas talk show but you you hear a lot of his watto on those episodes as well <laughs> that's why i love the show so much it's him doing watto he's so funny <laughs> but uh so i yeah. and then i i did start listening to like the episodes in order and then i did i i started doing what you're doing is basically I would pick a mini series from a director that I was I'd seen all the movies or I wanted to see all the movies and I would just go along with those. Okay. Um that's that's of course I'm asking for for something to drink so I'm gonna have to get going here in a second. But that's um, fine. I think we've covered everything so yeah. Okay well let me let me do a quick uh is is there anything that you want to like promote? I don't anything that you're gonna be I don't know if you're getting back into writing or anything. No, I'm just too busy with work. So um, just, you know, they can go check out, they can go check out a uh, uh, cinema for cell block or, or, or cinema for pylon.blogspot.com. And, and uh, they can check one of those out and see what I've done before, but yeah, nothing new right now. So. Okay. Well, uh, as for us, you can, um, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at two-headed pod on twitter and instagram facebook group just look up the incredible two-headed podcast or, or facebook page that is um and that'll be it for us for another uh another episode we'll see you again in two weeks <laughs> <laughs>